Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. On the first episode of Tuning In, I spoke with Handel and Haydn's artistic director, Harry Christophers, who talked briefly about a seminar for young singers run by his UK-based group, The Sixteen. He mentioned that the participants worked on several of the motets by Johann Sebastian Bach, at which point I played an excerpt of the Handel and Haydn Society performing Singet dem Herrn ein neues Lied, or Sing a New Song unto the Lord. After hearing excited feedback about that excerpt, I revisited the recording of that performance and was reminded what a remarkable concert it had been, and what top form our audience found our chorus in. I felt this motet would be an interesting springboard from which to discuss several topics pertaining to Bach's choral music. My guest on this episode is Handel and Haydn's resident conductor of the chorus, Scott Allen Jarrett. Scott is an expert at functioning on three hours of sleep because in addition to his work at H&H, where he also joins the chorus as a baritone, he is director of music at Boston University's Marsh Chapel, music director at Boston's Back Bay Chorale, artistic director of the Charlotte Bach Academy, guest conductor at the Oregon Bach Festival and Miami's Seraphic Fire, and is a sought-after piano collaborator, teacher, and clinician. Hello, Scott. Hi, Guy. How are you? I'm well. So good to have you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Fantastic. How are you uh, faring through this time? Well, it's amazing. I thank you for the very generous introduction. Your, your check is in the mail uh, for those kind words, for sure. You know, I didn't do so well at the beginning of it, but, you know, now after reconciling and accepting some things about it, I think, you know, I'm, I'm hitting a stride with it. Scott, at Marsh Chapel, you run a series called the Bach Experience, where in addition to directing a cantata during a Sunday morning church service, you speak to the audience before the service begins, highlighting some of the salient points to listen for in the music that's to come. You do this very, very well. It's always informative, always inviting, and it's really clear how much you love Bach and so many aspects of his creative genius. I don't know how you speak about other composers, but where does this love, this curiosity and admiration of Bach stem from? That's such a good question, and and probably the question that I still don't have a great answer to, except to say that I'm an academic in a certain way, and I love books, and I have a lot of books in my condo. Anybody that's ever known me knows that. 
And it's not that I've read every one of them, but they represent an aspiration for the kind of thing that I might wish to know. And every interaction with box music for me has that quality about it of sort of revealing something that, gosh, I wish I'd thought of or I wish I, I could have known. And I feel like there are other composers, Handel comes to mind, Mozart comes to mind, who absolutely flourish in the depiction of the human condition, sort of, you know, they rejoice in who we are with all of our, our grit and flaws. And if we don't avail ourselves of those aspects, then then the composers fall flat. Somehow with Bach, there's an aspirational element that Bach always reveals who we could be and who we should be, especially insofar as my work has primarily been with cantatas. That coupled with a theology has been the greatest experience of my life to have regular and meaningful interaction with the composer through his music. We spoke about Bach once and you mentioned something I loved and, and think about that Bach is a metric by which you measure your life. His music is canonic and remains steadfast and you can measure your evolution against it. Well, absolutely. And I think any patron or member or subscriber or anybody in the H&H family will recognize this. Those folks who have come to Messiah year after year after year after year, they recognize that for for them, the annual performance of Messiah, yes, it's a ritual, but it's also a metric. It's also a way to measure, ah, yeah, last year at this time, this event happened in our life. This year, I feel better about this. Or the loss of a dear family member. And when the soprano starts to sing, I know that my Redeemer liveth, that means something different. The same is true for B minor Mass, certainly the Matthew Passion, which reveals our humanities in all its forms. But to me, the chance to have regular encounters with the masterpieces of this repertoire, with the musicians that are on the stage and performances at Symphony Hall with h and it's just an extraordinary experience, and life is surely better because of it. And that chance to re-engage with music that you know and continue to learn about is a deeply important exercise for any of us and all of us. Part of your work, like Bach's, is as a church musician. The church's role in Bach's life, uh, my, my earliest encounter with what might have been Bach's relationship with the church was reading some of the exchanges between the town fathers in Leipzig and Bach. In these, Bach is often complaining of conditions, and his audience is often dismissive and abrasive. So in a way, I grew up believing, based on this, that Bach may have suffered under the yoke of church duties. But the reality is actually much more nuanced than that, especially in light of the importance of religion in Bach's life. Can you speak to the idea of Bach and the church? Well, I mean, it's actually perhaps not as complicated as we, or nuanced as we might want to make it, insofar as a modern audience, post-Enlightenment, and a country which was founded with a basic principle of separation of church and state, it's a little difficult for us to uh, understand a time and a locus in which there was one faith option. If you were born in this place, you simply were. And this is really true for uh, any resident of the city of Leipzig at that time. You know, you were Lutheran, period, the end. Leipzig was a major university town, and it was the host to a very significant book fair each year. So it was a center for very serious learning. Theological developments and movements within Lutheranism were the stuff of dinner conversations in Leipzig. And the clergy, 
uh, staff and all of the congregants had quite a sophisticated understanding of the Lutheran faith and all of those that followed after Luther that contributed to the development of that theology. So I think for Bach, when he shows up in Leipzig in 1723, he had written a nice handful of cantatas, but it had not been the principal musical assignment for him. And he had written cantatas, but but not the sort of weekly engagement with the theology uh, that he was now faced with. What is astonishing to me, having said that, is that to get the job, Bach experienced three days of oral examinations, not on music, but on theology, before he could be offered the job. As if to say, anybody that gets this far, we're certain that they're musically competent. But we need to know if they really know their theology. Such was the importance of the cantata each week, which functioned as a musical sermon. I recently performed some cantatas with my Bach Academy in Charlotte, and over the course of presenting cantatas, and I would sort of give a little talk about them at each performance, and then in some of our workshops, it became clear to me that Bach's understanding and his own reconciliation of a, of a theological point or a scripture is amazing to me because he not only sort of read a text and set it to a music, but he also, by his music, reveals his opinion about that text. The example I have in mind, Guy, is Cantata 39, which is basically a sort of a social justice cantata, and it sets verses from Isaiah that invite you to do good things, uh, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, um, that, that sort of thing. And at the outset, Bach's music is dolorous, it's sad, it's, you know, the depiction is on those who are without, those poor people that we now have to help. The verses in Isaiah end up saying, of course you're going to be helpful, but it's your activity of giving and being an agent for change which is transformational. And that is the point. And over the course of that opening movement of Cantata 39, Bach takes the music on a journey that is transformational. And it becomes less about this duty to help your neighbor, rather it's about the transformational effect that each of us will experience by helping neighbor. The fact that he understood these theological elements at such a personal level is very moving to me. Obviously, we can't have a conversation with him and ask about that. But that's my own sort of uh, reckoning of uh, how the music comes off the page and how it's received to a modern ear. Hmm, that's an incredible insight into Bach's mechanism. Our listeners likely know of the three canonic vocal liturgical works by Bach, the St. Matthew and St. John Passions, those are the passions that survive, and the B minor Mass. Then there is a large body of cantatas, mostly liturgical, written for Sunday services, special festivals, and other occasions. The motets, one of which is our topic today, are somewhat less well-known. Would you talk about what a motet is to Bach and what features in Zingit are typical or not in the genre? So, like many musical terms, uh, their definition uh, varies according to location, uh, geography, and, and to time. For Bach, the motet was a musical form really of the generation before. And by the time Bach arrives in Leipzig, assuming his duties there, the Italian influence on music, this sort of concerted aspect of the high baroque, is the most sought-after form. And there's, you know, writing that sort of relegates the motet to the sort of, you know, country church kind of activity where they can't 
afford or have a populace that can supply sort of quality uh, level of instrumental playing that uh, Bach enjoyed in Leipzig. So the inheritance there is from previous generations, certainly in the Bach family, there are uh, antecedents for Bach's works. But there's, of course, the great master Heinrich Schütz, whose Die Himmel erzählen, The Heavens Are Telling, is dedicated to the Tomenerkor, to the St. Thomas Church. And for Bach, also, the term motet, as it does today, is most often associated with uh, Renaissance polyphony. And Bach used uh, an anthology, just like uh, church choirs today have on their libraries an, an anthology of, of anthems that they have in regular circulation. Bach had this volume of, uh, of motets that were in use by one of the training choirs. And so the idea was that um, a student would, would uh, learn the motet singing, sort of the old style of singing, and they would be uh, rotated at one of the four principal churches in Leipzig. And uh, once they were good enough, then they could graduate and they could begin to sing you know, cantatas. But it was part of a pedagogy and the tradition there at the Thomas Kirche. For Bach, and in terms of his output, as you rightly suggested, we typically, in modern publications, think that there are six motets. There are lots of other pieces in the output, plenty of instances in the B minor mass of music that is in a motet style. But in terms of the way Bach thought about the piece and the function and the timing, we typically group these six motets in one publication. Zingat dem Herren is likely the most famous of them. The properties that unify them for Bach are not unlike cantatas. Bach will draw his text. Uh, he'll create a composite text, whether he did himself or worked with a collaborator. So the, the first thing is always there's a scriptural text. So in the case of, of Zingat dem Herren, we have verses from Psalms 149 and from uh, 150. And those provide a context for other texts, which typically involve at least one chorale tune or a hymn tune, which sort of affirms the orthodoxy of the faith. And then there could be a new or more recent poetic text. Uh, and that is the case with Zingat Dame Heron. So the outer big movements, uh, it's about a 20 minute piece or 16 minute piece, depending on who's conducting. The outer movement, uh, set the psalm text. And then the inner movement, uh, which is cast in a contrasting tempo, is the composite between the chorale text and the, the newly written poetic text. In the other motets, you find the same kind of approach, and often Bach is using epistles, uh, Paul's epistles, for his text and the other pieces. And the composite then reveals a theological construct, and you have a scripture, an orthodoxy with a hymn, and then a personal approach with a, a poetic text. The other distinguishing feature is that there are no independent instrumental parts, because so far you could probably say there's no difference in what I'm saying um, uh, for the motets is with the cantata. But these are substantially choral or vocal pieces. In a couple of the more obviously instrumental looking pieces, the contratant pieces, we know that Bach wrote out doubling parts for the two choirs, but they are not independent. Zingat Dame Heron certainly functions in that way. Uh, so you'll have a continual group, and then you might have instruments doubling, or you might not. And that is up to the conductor or director or the group that is performing the work. There, there's no direction by Bach as to what uh, an ensemble might do in terms of orchestrating or 
using instruments at all. No, I mean, I, the other thing that you know our listeners should bear in mind is that Bach would be just absolutely astonished that we were having this discussion today about these pieces that he never intended to have published. And it wasn't until the, the 1740s that Bach really gave serious attention toward you know, the posterity works that would be published in sort of multi-volumes. This liturgical music and these uh, sort of functional pieces, he had no idea that they would have a life beyond their specific purpose. And indeed with the motets, it seems that most all of them were written for an occasion of a funeral. So probably the instance where you didn't have time to write a full cantata or that wasn't part of the budgeting or the rubrics to support funeral services. So you would have a, a motet instead of a cantata. The official sources around these you know, give various dates and various timings, and they're often conjecture for uh, for purposes. But the aggregate all seem to have a sort of a funeral component about them or a theology that reconciles our mortality. You mentioned publishing. Uh, this work was written in 1727 or thereabouts. It was first published in 1802. So 19th century composers had access to it. But there is a whole generation of 18th century composers who had no idea what Zingat or any other motet by Bach sounded like. Well, you know, the, the story, the stories around the transmission of uh, the Bach catalog through his sons is in some ways it's, it's a great interest, but it's also a great tragedy because one wonders, you know, how many more motets we might actually have out there or, or other cantatas. Uh, H&H patrons probably heard in 2019 when we performed Sing at Ding Harry, Harry Christopher's tell the wonderful story about a young Mozart traveling across Europe with his father. He had the chance to see uh, the manuscript of Zingatim Heron. And there's a wonderful image that we that has been handed down of a young Mozart crawling around the floor, laying out all the pages so he could take it all in, and being absolutely inspired and astonished by the complexity and the mastery of the counterpoint. And um, one can see uh, evidence of the homage to the old master in uh, the Mozart T minor mass with its Double chorus and uh, a highly contrapuntal writing is, is really an homage to an older style. It's interesting that you mention an older style both now and in your discussion of what a motet is because it reminds me that Bach was constantly accused of being kind of a stick-in-the-mud conservative old-fashioned composer, even by his own sons, who very much accepted modern waves sweeping their musical world. I've come across 18th century descriptions of the part of Germany in which Bach worked, uh, Thuringia, as basically being the sticks and accusations that motets were the purview of Thuringian yokel cantors, one critic writes. But I wonder how such old-fashioned music can sound so fresh and exciting and relevant. Well, you know, anybody that follows in the wake of somebody like a Bach has a terrible time. I mean, you know, I think at Symphony Hall and the dead center of the proscenium above the stage, there's, there's one name of one composer, that's Beethoven. And nobody really could accomplish a 10th symphony, you know, for a long time because the image of Beethoven just loomed so large as a legacy. And the wonderful thing about Bach's music is that people like to think of him as a, as a non-progressive, but a sort of a conservative person who basically took all existing forms and brought them to a place that was insurpassable. So we must simply go to another direction. 
But I think Bach had a creativity that's misrepresented by that kind of argument. I think of just the cantatas that he wrote in the first year in Leipzig in 1723. If one considers those pieces just from a standpoint of orchestration alone, he was remarkably progressive. And here's a person who basically was known in his lifetime as a guy who was a brilliant organist. And he went around and trying out organs and he would show up and he would you know, draw a typical stop combination and test it out. And then he would say, you know, well, what does this sound, what does this stop sound like with this stop? And he orchestrates as an organist does. He's creating various textures by pulling different stops. And that's, that's quite a bit different than any of the uh, standard practices regarding instrumentation for Bach in his time. There are wonderful innovations all along the way. And certainly in the context of a motet, there just isn't anything as vocally virtuosic as Zinette Heron. Which is a great segue to my next question, which has to do with vocal virtuosity, but not what most of us think of virtuoso singing, but the complexity involved in bringing a text to life, which I know is a topic that is dear to you. It seems to me that as long as there has been polyphonic music in church, there has been a battle between those people who want to hear the music and those whose interest is solely the text. Now, Bach writes extremely complex music for some of this text in Zinget, in a form, the motet, that even contemporary writers like Johann Matheson admit does not support the intelligibility of the text much, and maybe even shouldn't. What is it like to prepare the text and try to make it comprehensible to the listener in music such as this? This is an excellent question, and there are a lot of ways to answer it, and I'm really glad you're asking it. If we limit our discussion to the Bach motets, you know, everybody has a favorite motet. It's sort of like a Brahms symphony. Everybody loves the first symphony of Brahms they learn. That's usually their favorite. With the motets of Bach, people generally regard Zingatim Heron and Jesu Minor Freude as the two greats. And to be sure, Jesu Minor Freude has an architecture and a scope and theological drive that are just absolutely not at odds, but they're quite different from Zingatim Heron. Zingatim Heron is about the most joyful, exuberant kind of music that one can imagine. One of the uh, commentators, a uh, German musicologist, Martin Geck, he likens the kind of dialogue between the two choirs that achieve Zingatim Heron as the kind of energy that's derived from particle collision. It's not just a graceful and elegant or even a raucous exchange or dialogue between two choirs, but a new energy is achieved when these two choirs come into contact with one another. And I, I love that image. I'm grateful for him for providing that. With regard to the text, I think um, Bach is a brilliant guide. There's no mysticism here. When Bach wants you to hear the text, he clears the texture for it to be possible. And I spend a lot of time coaching singers to just observe when Bach writes one note per syllable, a syllabic text setting, he wants the text to be heard with great clarity and understanding. There's a, a discipline required about that attention. And so Bach makes it easy for the listener. If you think about the text that's in a mass setting, Mozart or, or any, or, or even the B minor mass of Bach, the bulk of the text happens in the glory and the credo. Whereas the curie and the sanctus have just a simple text. So in some ways you find that balance that you spoke of between text and music 
you find uh, that the music sometimes uh, achieves the foreground in those sections with a simpler text. And so in our case with Zingit den Herrn, the psalms that are the first movement and the final movement from uh, Psalm 149, 150, they are the most overt, joyful hymns of praise. There's no uh, very tricky theological concept to take in. They are psalms of praise. End of sentence. So with that in mind, Bach can write a music that is busy musically because the text is understood. Also has the ability to repeat a text, just like any composer. So typically, the first time a text is introduced, it is set more clearly, and then with more repetitions of the text, um, the, the music sort of comes into the foreground, especially with the density of the counterpoint. When you get to the middle movement of Zingatim Heron, the tempo slows way down, and it begins with uh, one of the choruses singing a chorale, a hymn in a hymn-like fashion, that is to say, uh, one note per syllable. So you're able to hear that, and then the other choir responds with the poetic text, and it is repeated enough that it becomes almost a mantra. I study pieces like this, when I come to study a piece of Bach, I almost always start where he did, which is with the text. And I will see um, if the text reveals any sort of uh, suggestion about an architecture or structure, and then I'll compare that to uh, what Bach has done and how he's treated it, because he's a composer who's interested in architecture and symmetry. And then I'll examine uh, what musical ideas come out of uh, these representations of the text. So singing these pieces in Symphony Hall presents an altogether different challenge. But fortunately, we have just the best choir all around, and they are as committed to the exuberance and the profile of the character of the text as any course in the land. 
and uh, I think that it comes off in a, a wonderful crisp relief. Uh, at least we hope it does in Symphony Hall. Scott Allen Jarrett is resident conductor of the Handel and Haydn Society Chorus and joined me by phone from his home in Boston. He will return to complete our chat in the next episode, and I hope you will too. Meanwhile, you can find supplementary material to this episode on the Handel and Haydn Society website at handelandhaydn.org podcast. These include biographies, a terminology, translation of the text, and a manuscript copy of Bach's Zinget dem Herrn.